If you call this your home, or if you're thinking about calling this your home, and you've not watched last weekend's message, I'm going to encourage you to do so. If you call this your home and you've already watched it, I'm going to ask you to watch it again because I want you to understand and be familiar with everything we talked about in that service because it's not just laying the map for where we're headed this year. I believe it is setting our course for the next 16 years. I shared with you a dream that's been building in my heart that one day heaven's going to declare that there's no other place on the planet where Jesus is easier to find than the 757. That might not happen in our lifetime. I'm okay with that. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna pursue it as if it is, but if it's not, we're going to pass it down to the next generation. My belief is that I'm either going to say that here with heaven, or one day I'm going to be in heaven, and I'm going to say it there with a great cloud of witnesses as we look down and witness this region. So we have a mission that we are called to together, and that's to tell the story of the gospel and to live the way of Jesus. You saw those banners flanking me last weekend online. You're going to now see them at all the entryways. You're going to see them. They're going to be a prominent part, a prominent feature, especially on our website. If you've not been to our website recently, I would encourage you to go there and see some of those updates as well, which is leading us into this sermon series, which we're launching tonight, Our Loudest Witness. Our loudest witness, our loudest witness. If we're going to tell the story, if we're going to tell the story of the gospel, we want our witness to be heard. We want our witness to be loud. There is an individual effort that needs to be done by each of us, a resolve in our heart, but there is also an effort that we need to do as we come together, working in a cooperative effort And this sermon series is about four values that have always been and are going to continue to be central to this church. They're core to who we are, but we are connecting them in this series to our witness and to our commitment to telling the story of the gospel and living the way of Jesus. They are, as you saw them last week, diversity, ministry, generosity, and community. They are our warmest welcome. They are our best effort, our boldest gifts, and our strongest bond. Each week, we're going to be covering one of those together. Tonight, we're going to be doing diversity. You might ask, where did you get these? Why would you call these central? And I would say to you that when I study the book of Acts in earnest, when I do a deep dive, I I cannot, I cannot not see these four words. I I can't. And I believe that there is a correlation between the first century church and why these values were central to who they were, that Jesus was easy to find in Jerusalem during the first century. You also can't read the book of Acts and not read the Pauline epistles and see that Jesus was easy to find post-resurrection, and I believe that there is a connection between communities who champion these values and communities and churches that have a heart and a desire for Jesus to be easily found where they are. So I want to talk a little bit about the series, and then I want to talk about specifically about diversity tonight and why we're calling that our warmest welcome. So let's talk about our loudest witness. Let me just lay a little bit of a foundation for the weeks that are up and coming. Rupp Arena in Lexington, Kentucky, if you're a Wildcats fan, in 2017 set a record for the loudest moment in an indoor arena 
with a crowd cheer that reached 126.4 decibels. Now, I'm going to give you some context for that in a minute. It was 23,500 people. Also known as the Big Blue Nation, for the sea of blue the fans create in the stands, Kentucky Wildcats supporters have long been known for being among the loudest fans in U.S. college basketball. It was a reputation they more than lived up to for the record attempt after managing to create an insanely loud 126.4 decibel measurement. 126.4 decibel measurement set the world record for the loudest indoor crowd noise on January 28th of 2017, breaking the previous indoor record that was set by the Sacramento Kings. Now, let me, let me just give you a little context. An aircraft carrier, some of you have been on one. I, know, I have not. Some of you, and you're going to go, okay, that's loud. 140 decibels. Right? They, were, they were almost approaching aircraft carrier decibel levels. Your eardrum will tend to rupture at 150 to 165. Yeah, 150 to 165. Now, let me tell you this. If you took those 23,500 people one at a time and took them into the stadium and had them scream as loud as they could and did that 23,500 times with everyone individually who was there at that stadium on that day and then you added it all up, you know what you would not get? You would not get to 126 decibels. You just, you wouldn't do it. Because of this idea of something that is exponential, meaning that when all of those people come together, that you are more than the sum of your parts. You are more than the sum of your parts. So when Jesus said, I came to build the church, I think he did that for lots of reasons. But one is because I believe he wanted to amplify the witness of the people of God. He knows that there is a witness that we have as individuals, but he also knows that if I can get those people to come together and begin to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through both their testimony and also through the life that they live, which is why living the way of Jesus is important, he knew that there would be a witness that is so loud that even those who did not want to hear would be compelled to listen. Being together amplifies our voice. Being together amplifies our voice. Matthew 10, 26 to 27. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Don't, don't, don't be afraid of those who threaten you, for the time is coming when everything that is covered will be revealed and all that is secret will be, made known, will be made known to all. What I tell you now in the darkness, shout abroad when daybreak comes. And what I whisper in your ear, shout from the housetops for all to hear. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I recognize that you know me to be the Messiah, but my time has not just yet come for that truth to be revealed to the world. It's been revealed to you, but it's not yet time for us to reveal it to everyone. But that day is going to come. And what I love, he does not say, and when that day comes, I want you to whisper it to others the way that I whispered it to you. He's saying, I'm whispering it to you, but when it's time for you to declare it to the world, it should sound like a shout, our loudest witness. When I say loud, I do not mean obnoxious. I do not mean intrusive, and I do not mean arrogant. And I don't think the Bible does either. 
When Jesus says shout, I don't think he's saying be obnoxious or intrusive or arrogant. I think when he says loud, I think he means for us to be confident and unashamed and convincing. Confident and unashamed and convincing. Let's amplify our voice, City Life Church. Diversity, our warmest welcome. What is it? Because diversity means lots of different things to lots of different people. Now, there's going to be a list that's going to come up on the screen, and I'm not even saying that this list is exhaustive, as large as it is, as long as it is. Personalities. We have different personalities. Much to your frustration. Sometimes our personalities are incongruent with each other. Whether you like Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or Personality Plus or all the different tools that are out there to help us understand why we're irritated with other people. God made us with different kinds of personalities. Doctrinal beliefs. Are there core doctrines that are non-negotiable to us? Yes. We have seven that are absolutely core, and then we have about 17 or 18 beyond that that we say are central to us as a church. But beyond that, there's all kinds of doctrines and beliefs in here that we would say are open-handed. We're not going to agree together. That's why there's lots of different denominations. Another sermon for another time, but I think that was part of God's plan. Spiritual gifts, all of us have different spiritual gifts that have been deposited in us because of the varying assignments that we have. How about worship preferences? There's nothing wrong with choir robes and organs. There's nothing wrong with psalmic worship like what we do here, which we're trying to set our own decibel-reaching level every week. And I'm all for it. Psalmic worship that is prophetic and impassioned, band-driven, Acoustic sets, churches that their primary worship is quiet and reverent and reflective. These are all worship preferences, and I think that all of them can honor God in their own unique way. Politics. Politics. <laughs> Ethnic cultural norms. Ethnic cultural norms. Depending on what your ethnicity is, ethnicities and nations around the world, there's just cultural norms. If you've ever been on a mission trip, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. I'm headed to Niger, Africa for the first week in March. And if you're part of any mission trip, one of the most important part of those trips in preparing you to go is making sure that you understand cultural norms. Because what's a cultural norm to you? It's not necessarily a cultural norm somewhere else. Sometimes what's appropriate for us is inappropriate there. And it's important to understand those norms. There are generational values. I'm going to be 55 in March. I'm getting old. Thank you, Vanessa. There's going to be things that my generation wanted to value and champion that the next generation, they're going to have some different things that they're going to champion and so forth and so on. How about socioeconomic concerns? Might different things that might stir your heart and stir other people's heart. How about life experiences? How about intellectual interests, interests and capacities? You might not know this, but you are not the smartest person in this church. Joey Moriarty is. 
Love that kid. You might have seen the post. The Scotty and Saber just got a new vehicle. Come on, it's so good. And uh, Joey is in, and uh, our our kids programs here during the day. And and uh, and and Claire, our daughter, works in those kids programs. And she came home and told Joey broke down for Claire the entire cost benefit analysis <laughs> in great detail. For why they, per- I kid you not. And he was not parroting what he overheard his parents. He obviously he overheard them, but he wasn't just parroting. He understood it and was trying to make sure that Claire did. <laughs> How old is Joey? Five, five, six, six years, six years old. Five, six. I kid you not. I kid you not. He had to help Nathaniel Miller understand something just the other day. Uh, uh. There are people in this world that are smarter than we are. And God made them that way. Because there's stuff that they got to figure out that we can never figure out. Imago Dei. Protestant, Catholic. At the center of all of Christian beliefs we share this passion for the Imago Dei, that we are created in the image and the likeness of God. And I'm just asking you that when you look at that list and you see people in your world that are dramatically different than you are, this, this has given me pause, and I hope it gives you pause too. I just hope it gives you pause too. Be careful that you're not rejecting a part of God that you do not understand that he is trying to reveal to the world through someone who is different than you are. Be, just be careful. Be careful. Be careful that you're not offended by God himself that is being revealed to the world in them that is not a part of you. Be careful. We have all of the Holy Spirit at salvation. I believe that. Theologically, I believe that. But God's imago Dei, his image and his likeness, is apportioned to each of us differently. It's apportioned to each of us differently. We have all of his spirit But not all of his image and likeness. God divided that up. And I think one of the reasons why he divided that up is because it was not supposed to be a source that drove us apart, but it was supposed to be something that drew us together. So why is diversity important for church? For church. Why does diversity matter for a church? Because we don't want to just be loud, we want to be heard. We don't just want to be loud, we want to be heard. There is a loud that is noisy, and then there is a loud that is impactful. There is a loud that is noisy, and then there is a loud that is impactful. Acts 1.15 says, During this time when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. I'm telling you right now, the 120 people that were in the upper room when Pentecost came, they were a diverse group of people. How do I know that? Because there were 120 people in that room. That's how I know. Did they share some things? You better believe that they did. But they were dramatically different from each other in many other ways. How about Acts 2, 5 to 12 reads this way at the time. 
There were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. And when they heard the loud noises, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the areas of Libya, around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. They, they, stood, they, they stood there amazed and perplexed. Come on, what can this mean? That is a big question because it means a whole lot of things. But one of the things it certainly means is that the witness of the church is supposed to be loud, but it is supposed to be discernible and understood. Now, part of this is about this idea of spiritual language, but I believe it's much more than that. It's also a text that is trying to say to us that the church at its inception was incredibly diverse. Did they all share a common belief in Judaism and religious practice? They did. But they brought all of the other things that made them different to that conversation. And if you have done any study about first century Judaism, you know that that in and of itself was not monolithic. There were all kinds of factions within Judaism when Jesus came. Did you know that every rabbi had their own individual interpretation of the Mosaic law that was called their yoke? that you agreed to attach yourself to by following that rabbi, and they all disagreed with each other. It's the idea of different translations of the Bible and denominations all mixed in together. Judaism was not monolithic, monolithic during the first century, which means uni completely uniform. The crowd was diverse. The 3,000 people that birthed the church on that day by responding to the altar call that Peter came, Peter gave. You know what? They all came. That list that you just saw on that screen, that expansive list, guess what? All those people brought all those things with them to that moment. They brought it all with them to that moment. And diversity was hard for them just as it's hard for us today. They struggled with it. It was, it was complicated the 12 disciples themselves, if you've never read the book 12 Ordinary Men by John MacArthur, it's an amazing book. He talks about the impossibility of these 12 being to work together in a cooperative effort in any way at all is a modern-day miracle because of how different they were. And the early church struggled just the same. I'm just going to reference these. Our notes are always online. You can download it in the week to come if you want to. But Acts 6, 1 through 7, one of the first disagreements of the early church, that Grecian widows were not being treated in the same that Jewish widows were, meaning that they were supposed to be cared for and provided for financially, provided for their needs. And the people that were responsible for that were giving preference to the Jewish widows and the Grecian widows were suffering. What's that about? I'll tell you what that about, that's about. That's about racism right there in the first century church. 
Acts 15, if you read there, Judaizers. What's Judaizer? Judaizer is somebody in the first century who believed that you couldn't be a Christian unless you also embraced everything about Judaism, meaning that Christianity was an extension of Judaism and not in place of. So they went to Antioch and stirred up all kinds of trouble and said, hey, you people call yourselves Christians, but you're not Christians because you're not doing all of these things. Acts 15, the church struggled with diversity. Galatians 2, 11 to 13, Paul has to confront Peter publicly. Peter is a rock star in the early church at this point, a rock star. And he's in a room eating and he's sitting with non-Jewish people and some religious leaders that had power and influence and authority walked in the room. And so Peter got up from that table with those people that did not look like him and went and sat with someone else that did because he didn't want to be seen with people of a different race and ethnic background in the eyes of these religious leaders. What does that sound like? I'll tell you what it sounds like. It sounds like racism. Yeah, in the first century church. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. He did not say to Peter, can I, can I talk to you for a minute over here? No, 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 no. He just let him have it. Yeah, so, sometimes the rebuke is supposed to be public, and sometimes it's supposed to be private. If you think Paul did it wrong, then you can take that up with him when you see him in heaven. Why am I saying that with you? Because diversity's hard, people. It's just hard. It's hard here, and it was hard then. But the prize, oh, the prize. Oh, the prize. Because it will take loud that is noisy and make loud that is impactful just as it did in the first century, we can see it happen again today. If you don't think contextualizing the message of the gospel matters, then you have never spent time talking to a missionary who lives abroad. If you don't think this idea of contextualizing the gospel is important and necessary, then you have never had a conversation with a missionary. I guarantee it. And you've probably never been on a mission trip. Every Christian should go to a mission trip to a faraway place at some point in your life, at least one time. It will change the way you think. Come on, Carrie Shannon, I hear you over there. <laughs> Let me give you, I'm going to recommend a few books tonight. One is Peace Child by Don Richardson. Peace Child, it will change your life. Change your life. You think you're taking risk? He took his wife and children and lived amongst a tribe of cannibals. Yeah. And the highest value in this tribe of cannibals, the people that were esteemed the most, were people that ate someone after pretending to be their friend longer than anyone else. Yeah. Go live there. Which means that when he presented the gospel message to them the first time, Judas was their hero and not Jesus because he was the betrayer. You don't think learning how to contextualize, and I'm not going to tell you the end of the story because there's this there's incredible story of how God had hidden something else in the story and the history of that culture so that they could understand the gospel. He went on to write Eternity in Their Hearts where he does an extensive study of all cultures on the entire earth and how God prepared them in some way, in some fashion, in some manner to be able to understand the gospel through their own cultural tradition. So good. 
When we are a diverse church, we learn how to speak to people from all different walks of life. When we're a diverse church, we learn how to speak to people from all different walks of life. Acts 2.21 in the King James says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever. I want this church to be a church that speaks all kinds of whosoever languages. To, to whosoever personalities and political alignments and, and, and whosoever spiritual gifts and whosoever cultural norms and whosoever intellectual capacities. I'm not saying to you that the gospel needs help. Do, do not misunderstand me. What I'm saying is that you need help. <laughs> the gospel doesn't need help. We, we need help. We need help. We need help. Diversity is our warmest welcome. Diversity, our warmest welcome. These three words are not new for you, but I'm giving them to you again. Celebration. You cannot be a diverse church if you don't know how to celebrate one another's passions and assignments and personalities and everything else on that list, whether it frustrates you or whether you agree with it or not. We have got to learn how to celebrate one another. I taught on this not too long ago, and I shared with you what I believe are three syndromes that we see in the Bible, which is one of the reasons why people have a hard time celebrating diversity. One, I call it the Paul syndrome meaning from when Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, who was one of the, the most ardent persecutors of Christianity in the first century, literally had Christians put to death. I call it the Paul syndrome, that is that sometimes we violently oppose other people's passions because something inside of us knows that we're supposed to be a part of it and we don't like that call. See, I think something inside of Saul's soul and his spirit, he knew that he was actually supposed to be a part of the movement of Christianity, and in his violent protest against it was expressed through this violent protest against people. See, I think sometimes there is vitriol that comes out of us because deep down inside, we know, we know that we're actually supposed to be one of the greatest advocates for that point of view, the Paul Syndrome. There is the Saul syndrome with the Old Testament Saul, King Saul. Sometimes we are offended by the passions of others because their cause is gaining more popularity than ours. Come on. Saul and David and the conflict that existed between the two of them. Envy and jealousy and covetedness is real and the human heart is inclined to it. Mine is and yours too. There is the Herod syndrome of King Herod of the first century when Jesus was born. Sometimes we are offended by the passions of others because the change that is being called for threatens our own power and privilege. I'll let that stand for itself. Do passions have limits? Are our passions supposed to have limits? Yes. Yes. If your passion is a gambling addiction, then we want to help you find deliverance from that. There's all kinds of ways that the capacity for passion of the human heart can be misdirected to different things in inappropriate ways. 
I'm not saying that just because someone's passionate about it that we're supposed to celebrate it. Sure, there has to be some discerning moment. Sure, there has to be a filter that it passes through called Scripture. Absolutely. But sometimes the filter that we use has a whole lot of us in it that is not supposed to be present. We want this book to be the filter. Which means that there are a whole lot of passions that are going to pass through it that you're not called to. But if you believe in the idea of Imago Dei, and this call to diversity stirs your heart like it does mine, then you're going to be cheering people on that might be championing something that maybe you don't even understand or maybe something you disagree with, but you see the fruit of their life. And we're able to say to them, you keep running after that thing that God has put in your heart. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 reads this way. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. Come on. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. I don't know about you, but that sounds a little bit intense. Sometimes you got to deconstruct things, and sometimes that happens through destruction. Sometimes it is aggressive. Sometimes it is intense. That's why we did that sermon series last fall called Apolitikos that talks about the wrathfulness that is a sod of God that's born out of his love. It's not in conflict with his love. It's born out of his love. Sometimes there's supposed to be a righteous indignation that's stirred up inside of us with each other. It's okay. We've got to be willing to celebrate the passions of others even when that passion is trying to tear down strongholds. Number two, consideration. Compassion and conviction. Huge fan of that book. Huge fan of the end campaign. Compassion and conviction. They talk about in that book this idea of, of, of a confident pluralism. What is confident pluralism? It, it means that truth is undefeated, so we don't have to be threatened by falsehood. Let's bring our ideas into the marketplace together. Let's bring them in because truth is undefeated. Truth is undefeated. I want to live in a society, in a world where people are free to espouse all kinds of ideas. Because that's what protects my freedom to espouse my ideas. The truth is undefeated. The truth is undefeated. Consideration is not talking about the idea of being considerate, because we, we believe in that too. But that's, you're going to find that in praxis in the 24 virtues. When I'm talking about consideration, I'm saying that you've got to be willing to consider that you might be the one that's wrong. Oh. I have to be willing to consider that I might be the one that's wrong. It doesn't mean that I can't be confident in my point of view. It doesn't mean that I can't be intense in my point of view. But I need to be just intense in listening to others. And and I need to be willing to learn and listen to viewpoints that oppose mine. If you live in an echo chamber, you are in trouble. 
Because it means that your blind spots will never be exposed and the false thinking that we all have will never be revealed. We believe in the infallibility of Scripture and we also believe that all of us are fallible in our interpretation of it. We believe in the infallibility of this book. It cannot fail you. It cannot fail you. But you can fail in your attempt to understand it. Which is why we need the Holy Spirit desperately. And we also need each other to see other points of view of this book that maybe we cannot see ourselves. James 1, 19. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. It does not mean that we're not supposed to speak, and it doesn't mean that sometimes there isn't a righteous indignation that's supposed to come out of us. It just means we should be slow to get there. Quick to listen. Proverbs 18, 13. Just read the entire book of Proverbs. So much of it speaks about this idea of being slow to speak. This is just one of many. One who gives an answer before he hears or before she hears, it is foolishness and shame to them. One who gives an answer before he hears. Let's be a church that's committed to listening to one another because we believe in consideration, considering other people's points of view, open to the possibility that we might be the ones who need to change our perspective. 1 Peter 3, 8, to sum up, All of you be harmonious, harmonious, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble. Come on. Harmonious, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble. Why are those words given to us? It does not say be uniform because we're not supposed to be uniform. We're supposed to be diverse. Because when we're diverse, we speak the languages of all different kinds of people. Peter is saying just end this journey forward, work together, make room for one another. So you can speak the languages of all walks of life and bring the message of the gospel to them. This too has limits. This too has limits. Doxa, again, what I referenced earlier was the sermon series that we did at the beginning of last year, which gives seven non-negotiable theological positions that we hold as a church. The Bible has very clear non-negotiable moral boundaries But truth is not permission to lack virtue. Even when we come into the marketplace of ideas, knowing that that's not a blind spot, knowing that it's true, like the divinity of Christ, like the efficacy of the cross, the centrality of the church, we're coming into the marketplace knowing that these ideas and beliefs that we hold and cherish and will and pass them on to the next generation, it does not mean that just because truth is on our side that we are not responsible for a virtuous presentation of that truth to other people. Just because we're right doesn't mean that the character of Christ is not required of us. Because, in fact, it's really just the opposite. See, if you just want to be right, then you don't have to be virtuous. But if you want to be heard, if you want to have impact, if you want to be listened to, then be virtuous first. 
How much time are you spending with people who are different than you? And how much time are you spending exploring ideas that challenge your own? How much time are you spending with people who are different than you? And how much time are you spending exploring the ideas that challenge your own? We've adopted as a society, especially within Christian churches, a secular mindset that loves winning more than we love relating. Let's, let's get back to loving relating. The last one is this, collaboration. Collaboration. Again, just catching you up here. If we're going to be a diverse church, then these three things have to be present. These three things have to define us as a congregation. Celebration, consideration, and collaboration. Arrogance is the genesis of deception, people. It's the genesis of deception. Exodus 20, verse 25, not going to go there for the sake of time. Again, it was in my Bible reading just this morning. Is, is that when God began to give the Israelites, as they were approaching Mount Sinai, and God began to give them the, what we now know to be the Mosaic Law, one of the rules was that when you build an altar, you can only use uncut stones, meaning that you're not allowed to shape those stones to make them fit perfectly together in this nice, neat little altar presentation. You could wash them off, you could clean them up, but you could not reshape them. You had to find a way to take the stone as God made it and make it fit to the one next to it to form the altar. It is one of the most powerful prophetic pictures of the church and all of Scripture. We have got to learn how to take people as they are. Do we all need some things washed off of us? You better believe it. Are there some things that are attached to us that need to be knocked away? You better believe it. But it's this idea in believing that God has shaped us in unique ways. They might rub us differently than what we would like, but can we just all agree that every church is supposed to be this beautiful, wondrous joining together of these naturally shaped Imago Dei stones that are built together to be an altar to the world that proclaims the gospel. Collaboration means that you need to be willing to work alongside someone that is shaped differently than you are. I need to work alongside people that are shaped differently than me. If you can't serve Jesus alongside people who are dramatically different than you are, you are rejecting that part of God that he is revealing to the world through them. A modern-day Pharisee is when you believe that Jesus is only ever on your side. Let's not be Pharisees. Acts 15, 8 to 9, God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. I referenced this earlier about one of the great moments of racial tension in the early church in the first century. Listen to what it says. Listen to what the, these, these early church leaders were saying to the church at large. He made no distinction between us and them for he cleansed their hearts through faith. Well, what are they saying? They're saying if God sees fit to give someone his Holy Spirit, then who are we to reject them? No matter how different they, they might be than us from that list that was on that screen earlier, if they've made a vow of devotion to Christ and God has seen fit to give them his Holy Spirit, 
Come on. Then who are we to reject them? Does that mean that you're going to be able to work alongside everybody? No. No. And you know what? That's okay too. Because it's going to take lots of different kinds of churches to reach lots of different kinds of people. I was talking with Chuck before the service. I read in a book recently this quote, which I've been using a lot in my own personal life, is that not everything is a problem to solve. Sometimes it's just the tension to manage. We've got to learn that. Not everything's a problem to solve. Sometimes it's the tension to manage. And if we don't learn how to manage the tension, then we're not going to collaborate with each other. And, and, if, and, and, if, and if we're not collaborating with each other, if we're not championing consideration, championing celebration, then we as a congregation will lack diversity. And if we lack diversity, it minimizes our voice. It minimizes our voice. We want to be a church that speaks the language of people from all different walks of life because we want the 757 to be a place where Jesus is easily found. In fact, we want it to be the kind of place where all of heaven would declare there's no other place on the planet that's easier to find Jesus than the 757 as we tell the story of the gospel and we live the way of Jesus. Stand with me and I'll close with this. This is in John 19, John 19, 26 to 27. I mean, I'm going to back up to verse 25. This is when Jesus is hanging on the cross for our sins. It says, standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, here is your mother. See, we love Jesus' plan for us to be in heaven with him. But do we love his plan for who we are supposed to, be, uh, to align ourselves with on the way there? We love Jesus' plan for us to be in heaven with him. But do we love his plan for who we are supposed to align ourselves with on the way there? Father, I love that picture that you give us of Jesus on the cross in some of his last moments. Because we know that Mary already had sons and daughters. And we also know that John had his own mother and a father too, and his own siblings. I love that picture, God, that you give us because in that moment, they did not have a felt need for a parent or a child. But sometimes you call us to relationships that aren't about our need, it's about the world's need. And so I pray that for each of us, that this week we're going to be asking ourselves some hard questions. Are there some people that you're calling us to be in relationship with that we might not otherwise choose? Are you trying to build an altar in the 757 that's asking my life to be built alongside the life of someone else who's shaped dramatically different than me? Father, help the witness of this church be amplified. Not noisy, but heard and impactful. 
Help us to be a church that always has our warmest welcome. In Jesus' name, come on, everybody said.